Early bird tickets for the Sports and Entertainment Marketing Summit ends next week on the 24th of February. If you are a marketer in the sports or entertainment industry, then this is the event for you. Get access to two full streams of content, over 200 delegates, multiple networking opportunities, and so much more. With the fast-evolving program and even more speakers yet to be announced, now is the time to book your early bird tickets and save $100. You only have one week. Head to www.mumbrella.com.au forward slash sports dash entertainment. Welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jaspin, and joining me to break down another week in Australia's media and marketing industry this week is reporter Anna McDonald. Howdy. And our deputy and acting editor, Andrew Banks. Hello, Callum. Later on in the episode, I will be joined by Gavin Morris, CEO at Bastion's new transformation consultancy, Bastion Transform, and until recently, Director of News at the ABC. During our conversation, Gavin speaks about the gap that exists in the market for Bastion Transform, media organizations' relationship with tech platforms, the renewed funding for the ABC and SBS, as well as dealing with external influence and criticism while at the ABC. But first, we need to discuss a few items ourselves. Banksy, what are we talking about today? Well, Callum, it's been a busy week so far. First up, we're going to be talking about marketing in the tourism industry with Australia's international borders set to reopen and then Tourism Australia dropping its new international campaign. And then we'll touch on Super Bowl advertising and the opportunity it presents advertisers. And just a quick housekeeping note, we will be uh, discussing Seven's financials alongside Nine's on next week's podcast when they drop. Tourism Australia this week launched its new campaign targeting international tourists ahead of next week when double vaccinated visa holders can finally travel to Australia quarantine free. The reported $40 million campaign entitled Don't Go Small, Go Australia via CHEP Network is already being rolled out in the UK, the US, as well as some other markets in an attempt to remind prospective travellers of what we have to offer down here. Yeah, so I spoke with Chris Sahir, who is the Senior Director of Trade Sales and Marketing at Lonely Planet, and he made a very interesting point, which is the last time that Australia has been making global headlines was the Djokovic saga. Um, And for international tourism, it means that's what's top of mind for potential tourists. And it makes it seem that it's not easy to enter Australia. It's a real challenge for marketers to make it clear that from the 21st of February, people are welcome. It is open. It's a complete departure from the past two years where it's very much been Fortress Australia. Further confusing for people uh, from the outside is that some states as well aren't even open to travel yet, including Western Australia. Yeah, it's interesting um, you brought up the Djokovic thing, Anna. Um, I had a chat with uh, Thinkabell's Adam Ferrier um, today, and he just had a lot to say about this, the COVID situation and how, how the Djokovic saga played out. And he, he thinks that actually it's not damaged Australian tourism in any way, which is which is pretty, like, surprising i thought he said that if anything it's strengthened as as an appealing destination and that he reckons that going hardcore with lockdowns and restrictions really shows that australia's got tough policies and this makes it like a more desirable place to be um what what i found really funny when i when i was speaking with him he said that you know 
um, people want to feel protected, especially away from home, and that when when people go to places like London or Texas, they feel slightly more icky. Was his um, expression? <laughs> um, but here, he, he thinks Australia has done more to keep the country safe, and um, so that was an interesting perspective on the situation. I, mean, I guess it does it does help when you've got a uh, vax population of ninety plus percent. Uh, maybe that maybe that ten percent isn't as uh, isn't as worrisome from a marketer's point of view, Anna. Yeah, I mean Australia as a destination has a lot to offer in terms of travel trends that seem to be appearing post pandemic. There's a lot that marketers can hop on, but the other thing though to keep in mind with that is it's a crowded market at the moment. It's not just Australia that's competing to have international tourists back. It's every other country pretty much in the world is also in a very similar predicament. So there's, it's a big market and it's going to be very competitive and a big challenge, I think, for tourism marketing. Yeah, it's almost like uh, we're a year behind schedule and everyone's got the jump on Australia. Banksy, now we've seen the Tourism Australia campaign. You did reach out to a couple of the state bodies to see if we can expect something similar. Now, it maybe seems uh, they're being a bit tight-lipped at the moment, but what was the kind of response that you got? <sighs> yeah, Callum, look, to be honest, I don't, I don't really think many states are really firing yet on all cylinders at the moment. I think I've kind of caught a few of them on the hop. Um, the only one that really did get back to me, though, was the Northern Territory, um, and they're doing quite a lot at the moment. Um, Tony Kwambi, the ED Marketing for Tourism NT, they said, you know, they've announced a $12.8 million, million package to support the workforce and international marketing to bring back visitors and workers to the Territory. Uh, just yesterday, they and Qantas announced their new E-190 base to be built in the Territory, and that just is on the back of the Seek Different campaign that uh, we ran in Umbrella just yesterday. So there's a lot going on in the Territory. Um, so, uh, you know, as for the other states, like I said, they were just a little bit not ready. I spoke to Susan Coghill, who is the CMO of Tourism Australia, and she said this campaign uh, was rolled out by CHEP because they needed a really sort of quick response in terms of the government decision to open the borders. They still, of course, work with MNC Saatchi and they've got a larger campaign on the way in development at the moment. Tourism and Events Queensland does also have a few campaigns in market, both domestically and internationally. They've got the Good to Go International Re-Entry Campaign it's live in Singapore and will also expand into North America, Germany, France, Italy, and the UK from next week when borders are open again. Yeah, I kind of get the impression that um, it might be a similar case to what we saw last year with vaccination campaigns where there were a few that got out early, some of them being the government ones. Obviously, they've got a sort of responsibility. But then once they all start, it'll be a, a bit of a... Um, bit of an all-at-once type situation. I did reach out to both Qantas and Virgin, not really much as of yet, also a bit tight-lipped. Virgin did say there's a few things in the pipeline, but, yeah, I, get, I, I suspect that once those borders are open, we'll, we'll be seeing quite a few. And, uh, Banksy, in terms of creativity, speaking to Adam Ferrian, uh, did he give any indication of what he thinks um, the approach Australia should be taking in terms of selling itself and getting tourism back up and running? 
Uh, yeah, Callum, look, he was really positive, um, which was really, you know, nice to hear. He, he thinks that Australia should take advantage of its natural position on the world stage. He, th- he said that Australia is known for its optimism, its uh, mix of natural and clean living, and, and that's really what the world wants right now. I mean, we're a laid-back country. He thinks we should get back to basics, and then once that happens, the floodgates will start to open, you know, when friends and family start visiting each other and we start to normalise again. So then we'll be seen as a really safe place to travel. Um, but he yeah. thinks that will create like a supply chain issue because of that. But he thinks it'll just make us a stronger and more attractive destination. And I, and I do think uh, that he has kind of traditionally been the approach Australia's taken with its um, its tourism advertising. You know, you kind of think back yeah. to some of those classics like the Where the Bloody Hell Are You? Yeah. I saw... Uh, there was the, the the campaign this week was up on up on the big screen in Piccadilly Circus this morning, and it was um saying "Come say good day." So I guess carrying on in the same vein uh, two years after a pandemic isn't always a bad thing. An interesting point was brought up on an ABC feed that I was reading yesterday: a same-sex couple traveling Australia together, documenting the travel through high-quality photos and drone footage. Uh, they said, quoted on the ABC, that the reason they're doing this is because there's a void of LGBTQI plus representation in media and marketing in the tourism industry. Anna, speaking to Lonely Planet, did what did you bring this up with them and what was the kind of assessment and how can these brands and tourism boards really do more to be showing representation in media and marketing? Well, there's a lot that really can be done. Speaking to Chris, he mentioned that it's not just an issue with uh, members of the LGBT plus community. It's also disabled travelers. It's also single parent travelers. There's really an opportunity for marketers to expand their messaging, not fit into this cookie cutter, you know, 30 something couples traveling. Um, so there's really an opportunity there to step away from that sort of stereotype. It will be interesting to see how that, uh, I guess, aspect of the industry develops over the next year with Sydney set to hold World Pride in 2023. Coming up next, the marketing world focuses on the Super Bowl. Monday morning saw the world and many Australians like myself who have no clue what's happening otherwise in the NFL turn their attention to the Super Bowl. It's one of the biggest advertising events annually and offers a snapshot into the creative trends and brands that are hot and some of those that are not. Anna, you wrote up campaign review yesterday surveying creatives on this year's big advertising event. Did you notice any particular trends cropping up this year? I mean, I feel like there's a couple things that you expect from a Super Bowl campaign at this stage. One thing that was noticeable to me, at least, was how many sort of metaverse-related campaigns there were. We had the Meta campaign. Larry David starred in an advertisement for FTX, which is a cryptocurrency. I don't know if you saw the Coinbase QR code ad, which was just a bouncing QR code similar to those DVD loading screens, bit of a throwback, that one. The other one, which was a trend, but a predictable trend, is the amount of celebrity cameos that were this year um, from the people that uh, were kind enough to participate in campaign review. There's a point to be made about the 
point of having a celebrity cameo for the sake of having a celebrity in an advertisement, how it adds to the brand messaging, uh, in particular the Squarespace featuring Zendaya one was examined in this campaign review. Um, also something that was quite nice was uh, the Uber Eats campaign, which was created in collaboration with Special US and Special Australia that was uh, viewed quite favorably. So it's sort of really nice to see some Australian work appreciated overseas. We covered this morning the winner of Initiatives Marketing Multi, which was a, a competition the media agency ran this year. Uh, I guess taking predictions on the the, the ads and the trends um, at this year's Super Bowl, and I spoke to the Chief Strategy Officer Chris Coulter just before we jumped on the podcast, and he ran me through some of the big trends because you know they kind of built this this system themselves to to amalgamate all of it, put through the data, and uh, I guess his his interpretations or his observations whether this year. There was a lot more interactivity through the spots themselves rather than, you know, in previous years it was hashtag and go and engage with this, whereas this year it was more scan the screen. Um, things like, you know, you mentioned that Coinbase ad there, Anna. Um, it's it's one that really gets people involved where they have to kind of go out their way. And he, he referred to it as a sort of a convergence of content and commerce. Also, his kind of observation, and you know, I, I I also probably noticed this in the few that I saw, was that there were the less sort of uh, creative big bets than previous years. You know, sometimes you'd watch through all these old YouTube compilations of the best ads, and it's kind of free content in itself. But uh, I mean, he mentioned outside of that crypto one, which seemed to really capture people's attention. I think I read that their um, their website, crypto, sorry, Coinbase's website, actually crashed after the ad through activity. Uh, that okay, being sort of ninety nine percent unbranded until the very end. Uh, I, I guess one another thing which um, Chris mentioned was that there was a lot more positivity in this year's advertising um, compared to maybe last year, where brands were really looking to kind of cover off those challenging topics. And after he said that, it kind of made me think back to an interview we did on the Umbrella cast last year with Squarespace's creative director, David Lee, and his observation of last year judging events, including Cannes and other kind of global events, whether um, it was it was quite the opposite. It was that we were seeing purpose-driven campaigns really with sort of um, heartfelt conviction from brands and um, one of his observations were that it was really uh, there wasn't really any uh, fun work coming out at all it was all a bit kind of serious and but anyway Annie you mentioned before uh, about the the kind of prevalence of c- celebrities in this year's advertising that was one of the topics we touched on in an interview which I conducted with neuroscience's Peter Pinter about why the Super Bowl uh, advertising trumps all other global opportunities. Here is that interview now. Peter Pinter is the CEO of NeuroInsight. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kellen. Great to be with you. So, Peter, you spent 20 years studying the effectiveness of advertising and its impact on long-term memory. The Super Bowl is synonymous with advertising, which was this week. What opportunities does it present for advertisers and brands that no other time or place really does? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it, it's interesting. Um, actually, my colleague who actually heads up the US office was there um, sort of celebrating uh, w- with a couple of partner clients over there. So he was right in the thick of it. And fortunately, I managed to grab him late his time and um, sort of got a few of his perceptions right off the top of his head. So here goes. Look, it is, you're right. It's a huge event. Um, it's kind of like a statement of we've arrived, I think is what I would say from an advertiser's point of view. If you think about some of the Actually, the, the, one of our favourites that I was sharing with Pranav, my colleague, was um, was Michelob Ultra. They, they're a really creatively smart client who managed to craft some beautiful storytelling and they had a, a piece in there for, for, for their beer brand. Um, beautifully crafted, managed to say very, very little but said a lot in terms of storytelling, mood and the appropriate positioning of branding. So they're, they're, they're some of the better advertisers as opposed to some of the more rational that kind of try and sell you stuff you know um so that they're the ones we like um i think one that really struck me this year was um electric cars have arrived so that notion of hey big statement big announcement we've arrived um silverado kia and even bmw the ix some are overall we're all going on which is something very very kind of unique to this point in time i think so yeah some big statements to be made i think there mate hmm and uh, I guess it's kind of renowned for having the 30-second slot. I don't, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but, you know, being one of the most expensive ad spots in in the world, how do these brands make the most of their or get the bang for their very large buck? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think the, I think the going rate is in anywhere from 7 to $10 million for a 30. So, you know, and there's a, a good 46 to 50 minutes of advertising in the, in the um, game itself. So there's a lot to get away and there's a lot of return to, to be had. So I think for our clients, you know, honestly, the business case is, is less than 1% of that, you know, that 7 to $10 million spend to make sure their ad is just perfectly engineered to, uh, to tell a story and to tell a brand story within. So, yeah, I, it's really important to get it right. And, and that's why we like the brands like sort of Nicolob Ultra who actually take it really, really seriously. It may not appear that way on air, but there's an enormous amount of engineering that goes into getting it just right. And uh, as I understand, you've also worked with advertisers, not just on the Super Bowl, but on the Australian equivalent. This is coming from Victorian, that being the AFL grand final. Um, I know I'll probably get a few comments about that. Correct. How, how, how do the spots stack up in terms of effectiveness? Yeah, yeah good, good question. Look, it, it, you know, it, the Super Bowl is a huge event and so it has a huge stage to for a brand to walk onto. Uh, and I guess, you know, in, in, in that um, same vein, we have like the AFL Grand Final, which is, which is a huge, big event in, in, you know, in Australia, in the Australian cu- cultural scene as well, I'd say. So, you know, if you're looking at, Toyota, Maccas, NAB, Telstra, those brands do a very, very good job as well. You know, obviously, we've worked with some of those along the way. Um, so, you know, we're very proud of the fact that they they stand up and really tune their advertising to the environment. And actually, that's the trick. If you can tune them- thematically to the surrounding fabric of an environment, then your your creative message kind of like, you know, it it, it, it lowers the, bant- the I guess, the barriers to entry or, or, or the defence mechanisms and they walk in more seamlessly. So that's the trick. But, yeah, it's certainly a big event on our, on our local stage. There's no question, Callum. And I guess, um, you know, with, with a lot of these ads, you see a, a big part is leveraging celebrities to kind of come on your brand. And 
obviously uh, every other day of the year we see ads with celebrities, but is there a sort of balance to, to the science of it in making that sort of, as you say, we've arrived moment and also producing an ad that's going to sell the product? Yeah, a- absolutely. Like, sure, celebrities can work, but they're certainly not the only trick in the book. And I think far more importantly is to tune into that context I was talking about. Like what we've found, um, you know, some of the things that we've found that's really interesting and unique to, say, the grand final over the home and away season is that you've got attributes like trust, uniqueness and security. That's an interesting one, security. If you're a brand like maybe a like a superannuation brand, you, you'd be very well to play to that emotional territory. So you don't have to use a... Um, a, a, you know, a well-known personality to open the hearts and minds of um, of the consumers. You, you can use relevance and context, and uh, they're the sort of things that we're working with advertisers with to, to understand the emotional territory. In fact, we'd argue that the emotional territory is far more important as a, as a lever to open the doorway to memory so your message and brand can walk in far, far more effective. And, of course, the other trick in the book, which I think is unique to the, uh, the, the AFL, is are those... Um, Jewel in the crown moments, which are the soulless life breaks. You know, a, a goal is kicked. There's 30 seconds between the, the goal being kicked and the ball being bounced in the middle of the ground, um, and there goes your ad, per- perfectly positioned um, after after a goal. So, we find that very, very, um, you know, high ROI real estate from an advertising point of view. Well, Peter, it's been great having you on, and thanks for your insights on uh, the Super Bowl. Pleasure, Callum. All the very best. Talk soon. Coming up next, I'll be chatting to Bastion Transforms' Gavin Morris. Gavin Morris, CEO of Bastion Transform, welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. Hello, Callum. At the end of 2021, um, after stepping down as Director of News at the ABC, you joined Bastion to start the uh, new digital transformation consultancy, as I mentioned there, Bastion Transform. You took a few people by surprise uh, in the industry with this news. What was it about Bastion that interested you? I think across my media career, I've always looked at opportunities where there is a big transformation piece where you can see that things are changing before us and you want to get involved in that. Uh, The media business, as you know, as well as anybody, has changed so much in the last 10 or 20 years, certainly since my time in the industry. Uh, And I just really uh, love that desire to be involved in things that are changing, to look for where there are new opportunities, to look where things, uh, where where audiences or consumers or customers are really changing the way they do things and to to be a part of that change. So I think all throughout my career, I've sought opportunities like that, Um, firstly in journalism, then secondly in management. And now this opportunity, I just thought was exactly what I wanted to do after a sort of long period of time doing a sort of very busy executive job. Uh, Were you in discussions with Jack and Fergus at Bastion prior to then uh, or did that come around after you kind of announced that you would would be stepping down from the ABC? You know what, I I met Jack when I was out there just looking for interesting people to talk to about ideas about, you know, what was going on in the broader world beyond the walls of the ABC. And so it was a sort of a fortuitous meeting. I wasn't expecting a job or a role or anything like that. 
And I think as Jack and I were chatting over a couple of walks during lockdown, when that's about all we were able to do, uh, we came upon this idea of doing something together. Um, I really love what Bastion have been able to do. I really kind of love where they've come from in the industry, the vision that Jack and Fergus have got for where it's going. And I thought, well, why not? This sounds like a really good opportunity to try something new. And how's that going so far? Have you, I guess, taking a direction with it yet or is it still very much in the early stages of establishing what Bastion Transform is going to be? So what I love about Bastion is they've built this series of great agencies and companies around the idea that in, you know, in that this part of industry and this part of the sector, disruption is here and it's time amid all the things that we work with that are being disrupted in the consulting, in the agency, in the uh, advertising and marketing space, I think it's really ripe for disruption as well. And so in looking at that, I just thought, well, if my place in that is to look at strategy formulation, looking at content consulting, looking at organizational renewal and cultural change, thinking could we be the disruptor in that part of the market that is able to offer something new, something more personal, something a little more nimble and something a little more active in the space that's more focused on the needs of the company, not focused on the needs of the model of the consultancy that's trying to sell the product. And so that's what we're going to try to do, start very small and humble, is to find good projects and find good companies that we think uh, could do with our help. And, and to effectively try to get inside and work from the inside, to understand the DNA of the business, to look at the formulation of the team, to try to find where the real quality and the opportunity is, uh, and then to work with organisations to try to find their digital horizon by uh, building a vision around that. You mentioned there the kind of organisations that you're going to be working with. Have you got an, a sort of avenue that you want to start off with, maybe playing into your expertise with media? There are two real opportunities I can see at the moment. There are some emerging digital businesses that are just looking for a bit of advice and support uh, to get them on the path to being a little bit more robust, a little bit more sustainable, to have a more consistent offering. And if I can bring my you know years of experience at the ABC and beyond into that and say, look, you know, just as a bit of a wise head or to be a devil's advocate, I'm certainly uh, looking to help out in that way. But I think at the other end of the market, there are big uh, established brands who have got a great reputation, but recognize that moving into a slightly more front foot uh, digital position is something that they've really got to make some progress on. And so a bit more like the work we did around strategy inside the ABC um, and in some of the other companies I've worked with previously, how do you take a big trusted brand that has loyal users and loyal customers? It doesn't want to necessarily do away with the DNA that made it great in the first place, but wants to move towards a digital future that can make it as successful you know, down the track as it has been in the past. So they're the two opportunities that I can really see that we might be able to uh, help with. Um, but Callum, I also think that there's this there's this place around the complacency that exists among some of the existing consultancies that I've both seen as a client um, and that I've seen in the last year or so as I've got around and talked to uh, lots of different organisations. You know, I'll tell you one little anecdote. I, I remember I didn't commission this consultancy report, but I, I was in receipt of a consultant's report at the ABC at one point uh, where uh, 
as you read through the report, it was clear that there was another company's name uh, littered throughout the report. And I thought nothing says complacency and perhaps even laziness more than a, a big priced consultancy, not even sort of doing a word check when it's kind of reproducing a report that it's produced for somebody else, not even changing the names properly. So I think there is room in the marketplace where I think the big established consultancies have either you know, priced a lot of companies out of the market for getting good consultancy support, or they've become a little bit complacent and a little bit sort of lax in relation to how, how well they take care of their clients. And they're the spaces that I think Bastion Transform can move into. And do you think this is, I guess... And a, a, a very achievable thing for some of these bigger organizations, which you kind of mentioned, need to kind of transform into this more digital economy. Is that something that, you know, are some of those traditional players going to get left behind or is it a matter of just having the right solutions? Well, what's the, you know, you know really at the heart of transformation is the idea that uh, legacy companies or companies that have held sway in a market for a long, long time aren't. Uh, uh, don't necessarily have their eyes open to the fact that the things are changing around them uh, and, and are not necessarily the first ones to act to notice that thing, the world's changed and that they need to respond to that. Um, so the great shift in transformation is underneath that comes along new companies with fresher ideas and more nimble way of working, often a price point that's more acceptable to other companies on the rise, and you get this collaboration beneath the biggest players. Uh, and that's what I'm hoping we're able to do a little bit of, find other ambitious companies who are looking to uh, be nimble, to improve, to reach out to new audiences and new markets and work with them to be able to reach that. So in, in terms of a sort of, um, as a sort of segue, a new digital economy, one thing we've seen in the last couple of years is the introduction of these big tech players into the sort of publishing and media space. You've previously warned uh, about the dangers of getting too close to some of these digital platforms. What are your sort of views on the developing news media landscape following the passing of the bargaining code? Is it putting us on a better or sort of more worrisome path? I think we've got to be really careful, to be honest, because I think you'll see some of the big, you know, tech and, and digital platforms stamping their feet and complaining about the fact that they're being forced through regulation to provide more support to the news and journalism industry. But I also have a feeling that behind all of that in their boardrooms, they're pretty happy with the way that's worked out because what they haven't given away is any access to their main algorithms, to their main feeds of content, all of those places they'd be terrified about regulators or, uh, or, mon or monetizing models that are different to the one they've established. So I think what we've got to do is be really careful about the way we interact with these new schemes. While it's great to have some revenue coming back from the big tech platforms into newsrooms and into media organisations, let's not be so naive to think that we've still got to protect, firstly, the basic business models that some of these platforms have done much harm to uh, over recent years, um, but also their ability to still monopolise audiences on their main platforms through their main algorithms uh, and, and their, their main front windows. Uh, so I think it's a watch this space a little bit, but one of the things that I was very active in talking about inside the ABC before I moved on was just to ensure that, for instance, at a public broadcaster, we don't end up with a mixed model of funding that you have you know, publicly funded journalists and newsrooms and people over here, and meanwhile sitting next to them are Google and Facebook funded journalists and newsrooms. I think that becomes a very slippery slope for a public uh, media organisation. Um, but in commercial media organisations, I, I also think there are 
there are things just to keep an eye on in relation to what it means to business models and what it means to the power of those platforms down the track. So then I guess in terms of that funding model, last week the Morrison government did commit uh, around $3.3 billion over the next three years to the ABC, this being an uh, $87.2 million increase, that being the first boost that we've seen in recent years of sorts. Still obviously a far cry from a, a lot of the cuts that we've seen across the last decade or half decade. What were your initial take? On, what was your initial take on the renewal and increased funding? Look, I think two things. Firstly, it's very welcome. The fact the ABC and SBS now have stable funding for the next three years. They can plan accordingly. They can they can put in place strategies. They can deal with audience concerns rather than funding concerns. Uh, and that is a really reassuring thing. I've got to say it wasn't a place I was ever in as the news director. We were always worrying about the next budget cut and the next reduction. So it's terrific that uh, the ABC and SBS now have three years of certainty. I think beyond that, what it is genuinely a recognition of is how much esteem the public has currently in the public broadcasters and particularly the ABC. I have no doubt that um, budget cuts would have been forthcoming had you know, it not been a very politically sensitive thing to do. Um, and so I've always said to our teams, do your best work inside the ABC, do your best work, uh, make sure the public appreciates what you do. And that is the best defence the ABC has against budget cuts. And I think that's what's been recognised here. And I, if you don't mind, I'd like to dig a little deeper into what you mentioned there. What was the actual, I guess, the sort of actual impact that these cutbacks in recent years had in terms of the news production in the actual newsroom? Well, it cuts into everything. I mean, I was once quoted as saying that the last budget cut that we had really would cut into the bone, not just into the muscle. And I think I was much quoted and often derided by saying that. But but what you lose while you're trying to move an organisation from being you know, a linear broadcast organisation fit for a different time to one that is absolutely able to serve a digital audience and a contemporary audience. You're trying to get a transformation through with funding being reduced year on year, with more mouths to feed and more services to offer. And the real risk in that is, is a risk of quality uh, falling. You know, you can't have sub-editors and uh, the sort of quality control and the sort of rigour that you might have otherwise had if all the time you're sort of looking for how many more jobs you need to remove because of the latest budget cut. So in the end, it does affect quality or you have to reduce the services. And we went through a period in the last few years in my time as news director where unfortunately we had to reduce some services to try to maintain the quality of the product. And that's the choice you're faced with, you know, either watch the quality fall amid budget cuts while you're trying to do more things or reduce the services that you're able to offer, 745 News, Late Line, you know, things like that. They're the things that fall by the wayside when budget cuts bite. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, kind of when you do make comments on certain issues or go out on the defensive for the ABC, uh, it does open you up to commentary externally. Being director of news is probably one of the most or potentially the most under the microscope job in Australian media and a large portion of the I guess the criticism comes directly from News Corp outlets how do you think that the ABC needs to be more aggressive in defending itself I know in doing that you obviously again open yourself up to more criticism 
Yeah, look, I've always been a great believer in let your stories and your journalism do the talking for you. That, that there are times when you've just got to call out errors and false reporting and, and frankly, bullshit. Uh, and, and, you know, we've tried to do that where we've seen it. But, but also, um, I am a great believer that the ABC's journalism, and, and if you're a good newsroom in, in any company, your journalism is your best asset. It's the thing that people will appreciate most. Spend all as much effort as you can making your journalism and your output brilliant. Uh, and as little time as possible getting involved in culture wars and Twitter arguments. And, uh, and you know, in many cases, that's what your critics want to see the ABC do. Uh, they want to see you having a glass jaw, you know, fighting back unnecessarily, you know, showing that you're intemperate when somebody takes a shot at you. Um, and so I say, I, so as I say, I've always consigned it to call out false reporting and misfacts and mistruths because nobody should get away with that. But otherwise, stick to your job and, and, and focus on the journalism because that's what speaks louder than anything. And now that the ABC, along with the SBS, does have that funding sort of insecure, uh, sorry, in place for the next three years, looking forward, do you think it, how, how where do you think the ABC should be heading now and having that sort of solidity of the next three years to kind of forward plan? Well, look, it's got a really great opportunity now to focus on some strategy. Uh, it, it's got a five-year plan in place, which has given it a really great bedrock to build a future strategy on. And now that it's got secure funding, at least for three years, it's got this, well, three and a half years really now, it's got this terrific opportunity now to say, all right, where do we want to be beyond the five-year plan? What does the ABC look like towards that 10-year horizon? Um and, you know, one of, one of the things I've said before, both inside and outside the ABC, is it's got to start thinking about what the ABC is when the B isn't the thing that drives it every day. You know, in, in I don't know how far down the track, but in 20 or 30 years' time, it's not primarily going to be a broadcaster. It's going to be a great content provider, a great news provider, great for kids, great for entertainment and great for drama, but that not, not necessarily going to be across a broadcast spectrum as the way people consume their content changes. So I think there's that strategic opportunity for David and Ita and the teams inside the ABC to look at all of that, and I know they are, but to look at all of that and to say, how do we shape our future beyond the B? Yeah, and uh, you you touched on it just before, and I know it's something that you have sort of briefly mentioned, well, in public before, uh, that that being ABC journalists engaging and using Twitter as a as an avenue for for journalism, if you could just expand on that a little bit, because it is one of those areas that now the transformation of news is increasingly being used on platforms like Twitter. Why do you think that the journalists should be avoiding it? Two things, I think. Firstly, I think so many of them find it a negative experience now that that uh, we've had so many people. Uh, you know, within the ABC, come to management, say, I'm feeling traumatised, I'm feeling under attack, I'm feeling like I get, you know, abused and criticised on Twitter, what should I do about it? And my answer invariably always was get off Twitter. Um, you know, if you're not there, the hate isn't going to reach you in the same way. So there's that kind of personal affrontery that people are experiencing on Twitter, which I think is very unhealthy. But secondly, um, I still think Twitter has got and other social platforms have got a lot of virtue in information sharing and in gathering information and all of those sorts of things. Um, but what I don't necessarily think it's good for is is saying and doing things that you would never do uh, in your public guise as a journalist, you know, um, 
you know, the ABC is fairly impeccable in its storytelling on its platforms in sticking to the rules of, you know, not taking a side and not saying what you really think and not voicing your opinions. Sometimes on Twitter and other social media platforms, we're not, we're, we're, I keep saying we, Callum, they, as in people <laughs> inside the ABC, have not been so disciplined. Uh, and so, you know, I think that can undermine the trust that people have in the ABC if they see really great journalism on our platforms and then on other platforms they see uh, some of the ABC's people saying and showing what they really think. And just just to finish up, Gavin, there was a report that came out this morning from Get Up, which is a, a political activist group authored by two AB, ex-ABC staffers. The, the report sort of detailed alleged political intervention across a number of sort of avenues from the coalition government in the last few years. Um, you, I guess, were brought up a few times in the way that you responded to this kind of intervention. What was your experience with that? Do you think that it sometimes did overstep the mark and is there a way to sort of ensure that that independence can carry on in the way forward? So what I would say in my sort of upfront and personal observation of these things, certainly over the past six years, is lots of people will try uh, to influence the way the ABC reports or uh, the, the type of journalism it does. Um, but I think the ABC and the people inside it have been very resolute in not letting that affect their professionalism and getting to the way that they step forward and keep doing strong journalism. I don't think anyone could argue that the ABC's journalism has got softer or weaker in recent years amid all of these suggestions that there was lots of influence and interference around. In fact, I'd argue it got stronger. And my advice to the teams while I was in there was do not take a backward step when somebody tries to influence or interfere your reporting. Go even harder uh, because your role is not to ever take on board the criticism or the advice if it is unwarranted from people that have vested interests. Your uh, job is to question those vested interests, to investigate them and you know, where, where necessary to reveal them. Uh, and, I, and I think the ABC's credibility and integrity in that regard has not taken a backward step in any way. Well, Gavin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and wishing you all the best with Bastion Transform. Great to talk to you, Callum. Thank you. And that's it for this week. Please be sure to subscribe to the Mumbrella Cast on your favourite podcast platform and keep checking mumbrella.com.au for more content and updates. Anna and Banksy, thank you. Thanks, Anna. Bye, y'all. And thanks again to Gavin Morris and Peter Pinter. See you next week. Mm-hmm.